everyone, and thanks for listening. You're listening to another episode of Bright Lights, Consumer Trends in Conversation with Element 54. I'm your host, Julianne Ng. In today's episode of Sustainable Futures, where we look at sustainability trends from the perspective of different industry experts, I have the privilege of speaking with Trevor Tuitemkin Elistad Van Summer. Trevor is an herbalist, aromatherapist, horticulturalist, and educator. He teaches classes on organic gardening and plant medicine, specializing in native plants significant to the healing traditions of European and North American First Nations groups. Trevor is also a public relations and communications expert, known for building education-focused advocacy and media programs at some of Canada's top wellness companies, including his current role as head of PR, communications, influencer marketing, and education at Sage Natural Wellness. He has been nominated as one of Canada's top social media professionals and has written for or been featured in Healthline, Mind Body Green, Coveter, Thought Catalog, The Cheat Sheet, Huffington Post, Good Men Project, Greatest, The Kit, Time Out, and Elephant Journal. Welcome to the podcast, Trevor, and thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Let's start by grounding our listeners on what sustainability means. We know from the research that we do on behalf of our clients across different industries that there's still a lot of confusion about what sustainability actually is and how it's defined. How would you define sustainability? Yeah, so I mean, I guess before I go into anything, it's really important for me to just acknowledge that I come to your listeners as a settler on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, um, the Squamish, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Musqueam nations. And I'm probably going to spend some time today talking about my knowledge and lived experience um, with work that I've done with Indigenous groups and people, but I want to make sure that it's really clear that I am a settler. Um, who is eternally grateful to the original inhabitants of this land and for the opportunity to live here and for the people and groups who have helped me better understand sustainability, plant medicine, and how nature and everything are really intrinsically mixed, which is really foundational to my belief system around sustainability. So I guess for, for most people, we, we technically think of sustainability in terms of things like transparency and public disclosure on the side of governments and businesses, you know, waste and greenhouse gas emissions, the use of water and materials, whether those are hazardous materials or innovative, um, animal and workers' rights, and the conditions of people and biodiversity that are impacted by operations. But for me, sustainability is really less about formal structures and frameworks, but rather a way of knowing and being. So this is really something that I understand through this Indigenous mindset that I I spoke to earlier, and I encourage people to study and think through this mindset whenever possible when thinking about sustainability. You see, like sustainability and Indigenous ways of knowing and being are really one and the same. Um, Indigenous peoples have suffered enormously at the hands of colonization and because of political, economic, religious, and natural challenges. But some of their resistance to these forces is because they maintain cultural values that are consistent with ideas of sustainability. Indigenous groups have long-standing presence and relationships with their traditional territories, and they have intentional strategies designed to secure a balance between humans and the natural world for the benefit of future generations. And I think this ethics of place is really further supported by uh, almost a responsibility across time. So what I mean by that is like, they have a forward and backward looking awareness of the impact that's made through living in this world and how these impacts cannot be resolved in a day or a year, but rather through generations of lives lived. So impact 
is not how some sustainability people might think about it typically um, as like a KPI and a spreadsheet or, um, or something like that, but it's rather this awareness and thought process that considers the actual lives of the ancestors that came before them and then the future generations that are yet to come. So really by having a relationship with everything in nature and understanding this like cyclical quality of the natural world, I feel like I am at least myself, I'm better to fully understand and respect and honor the gifts of the home that we're on right now, our planet and the ways in which we live here. Um, but beyond the natural world, I also believe that social responsibility plays a huge role in sustainability as well. I, I don't believe we can live in a world sustainably when oppression and discrimination are so institutionalized. And I feel that we're seeing so many positive changes with people and beginning to uncover truths that are painful and hard, but also necessary for us to grow as a people, whether it's a, like social or environmental, I think we have to be able to like lift the curtain and be able to speak honestly about our faults as individuals, businesses, governments, and a collective group of people in order to actually create a better world for ourselves that will um, really provide a healthy home for us for generations to come. So. <laughs> not your typical definition of sustainability, I guess, but that's really sort of how I, how I wrap my head around it. Yeah, that's a fascinating answer. And thank you for, for that amount of detail. I think what's interesting is you use this phrase and um, correct me if I didn't, I'm not playing it back properly, but really that what really stands out for me is when you said it's really a, a mindset and a way of being. Yeah, definitely. That's exactly um, how I've kind of shifted my understanding of it, at least I'm a very kind of data-driven person at heart, but I, I didn't really live and believe, um, and, and fully embrace sustainability until I started thinking about it as something that was beyond numbers in a spreadsheet. So your background is really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about, I guess, how your personal and professional interest in sustainability came to be? How yeah. did your journey, um, what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a winding road, I guess, and I um, I think like a lot of things, um, you know, it's it's deeply intertwined into how I grew up. But um, I've never actually studied formally sustainability. It's always been a part of different you know degrees and stuff that I've taken. But um, yeah, it's 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 just been so intertwined though in the way in which I approach marketing and business as somebody who works in um, the corporate world. Um, and it's, it's been a personal passion of mine. So it is something that has, has worked its way into my job description. And I've been fortunate enough to work with people at Sage and previous to that who had masters of sustainability planning, but I always kind of held the heart of a program, um, which is, um, something that's been really important to me. But I mean, I grew up in Alberta, actually, um, I'm currently in BC. Um, but, um, my mother's parents came to Canada from Europe and they were farmers near Red Deer, Alberta, actually. And from an early age, I just, all my early memories were from spending time on, on my grandparents' farm and in my aunt's backyards and gardens. And I just, my, my most fondest memories are with my grandmother picking raspberries and peas and she, her teaching me about weeding. And it really started with my hands in the soil. Um, and I think like a lot of things in my life and probably many of your listeners as well, my story really started through, um, the support of a really strong network of women, honestly. Um, but my dad too, my parents loved to camp and spent time outdoors. Um, and I just started developing this love of 
plants. I was always a very introverted kid. And I found that like when plants were slow and they were like patient and they felt kind to me. Um, but also I had these parents in Calgary, Alberta growing up who were so passionate about recycling. Um, and it was well and beyond what the system in Calgary, you know, offered. And my father actually, um, who traveled for work between Calgary and Edmonton, he would actually have us save like all of our film plastics and all of the things that we couldn't recycle in Calgary. And then he would take it up with him for business in the back of his van in boxes up to Edmonton because they had a better recycling program. And I grew up with this mindset and these parents who just, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of luxuries and um, extravagant things in our home, but we were very comfortable and the things that we had, we used until they were like fully used and we, or we sold them or we gave them away. And I was just very lucky to grow up in this um, household with parents like that, um, that really gave me this mindset about like what value is. Um, but later on in my life, I started really exploring my love of plants a lot more. And I took, you know, as you mentioned, I'm an herbalist and an aromatherapist, and I studied in organic land management and, um, and horticulture. And I just started compiling all these different um, ways of like supporting people's wellness um, through the lens of plants and through a natural kind of environment. Um, but I was also introduced through these studies through Indigenous ways of working with the land, um, teachers and voices that were really important to me. And then when I met my husband, who is actually Indigenous, he's Sakani um, from the Kodacha tribe in uh, northern BC, he also started teaching me a lot about the ways in which his people worked with the land and had a relationship with plants in the natural world. And so these like sort of like environmental passions and then my passions for plants and indigenous communities, it kind of just came together. And, um, you know, I, I just, I was that person who is just always speaking about sustainability within the business. And before you know it, it just became a part of the portfolio that I carried throughout my career. And I now consider myself sort of an applied specialist in it, but um, I have a lot to learn like a lot of other people as well. So, yeah. So it's interesting because it sounds, you know, when people think about or companies um, embark on um, initiatives related to sustainability, they, it's generally they think of it as something that is more forward looking now, but in fact, based on your roots and your heritage and like what you described of the First Nations groups, it's really something that is deeply rooted um, in the past. So it's not like it's some new type of thinking. It's just, it's more um, on top of mind now. Mm -hmm. That is a really, you know, I just had a light bulb too, as you were saying that. Um, yeah, it is very, it's, it's a heartwarming, but it's, we can look back to look forward, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm sure a lot of other people can relate to that experience of growing up in a simpler time. I love that. Look back to look forward. That's, that's great. Thinking about different industries um, and let's say what you might've seen around the world, what are some best in class examples of sustainability that you've seen? And again, it's interesting because your definition of sustainability isn't, I'll say like the traditional one in terms of, like you mentioned, KPIs and things that you are looking at on a scorecard, but thinking about sustainability, even through the lens that you have, what would you say are some best in class examples that you've seen? 
And that's uh, that's funny because I might have more of a typical answer for this question for you, but um, I I've been looking a lot um, at like at the fashion industry actually um, when it comes to sustainability, and I think there's a lot of interesting work happening in that industry, and it might be specifically because of the volumes they're producing and the overall impact that their industry is having on society as a whole, but. Um, I'm a person who really likes systems and data, like I said, as well as I like, you know, the, the feel good stuff, but I'm really excited to see the different tools of measurement and indexes that are being developed by the fashion industry to create this shared language across across people and companies so that consumers and manufacturers can really measure their impact. So I think having a transparent benchmark is probably something that a lot of people are aware of in this work and others will probably speak to, um, but it really excites me as a consumer as well, to not only have um, a benchmark that a company is um, standing by, but also like certain metrics that somebody can, who's standing at shelf can actually look at a product and, you know, anticipate and know that they're purchasing something that is going to have the impact that they agree with. Um, otherwise, like if I don't have enough data as a consumer, um, I know you're a big data fan as well, but like, I just get skeptical and I start to start to believe that I'm being greenwashed by a brand. So transparency to me is super important. And I think we're seeing a lot of growth in fashion around transparency in a direction that I think is really positive. So I know the caring group um, is actually currently very lauded in the fashion industry around sustainability. And this group would include like very high luxury brands like Gucci and Alexander McQueen, Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, and like so many more. But their work is really around this intrinsic tie that luxury and sustainability should have. And I think that's related to this idea I shared around growing up and understanding the value of a product. Like high value should be sustainable, it should last, it should be well-made. Um, but this idea is really at the center of their innovation and their value creation as a company. Um, and they've adopted a really high standard of targets, which they publicly share with their consumers um, for them to hit by 2025. I believe it's, you know, 40% reduction in environmental footprint overall, 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. I love to see those sort of ambitious targets. And I'm also open if a company doesn't hit, hit those, but I, I love when brands and organizations and governments are sharing those benchmarks and they're sharing how they're meeting those goals. Um, but I, I believe the Business of Fashion, which is a media outlet specifically towards the fashion and beauty industries, they published a quite comprehensive sustainability index this year, where they really like looked at brands and were scoring them for some very standardized metrics around some of the, the, the things I talked about at the beginning, with transparency, the use of water and chemicals and those materials, but rather than simply just using sustainability as a marketing campaign, um, I believe that like a group like Caring is just, there's, they, they, I believe that they're rooted in strategy um, around sustainability and sharing transparently with me. Um, but I would say too, like the fashion industry as well has, um, I believe it's the HIG index. So it's an index um, of fabrics and it goes into very specific detail around the sustainable like impacts that those fabrics have. And, um, you know, we make assumptions as people that, um, synthetic fabrics are just bad or synthetics are just like, you know, a, a terrible thing. But in some cases, some, some sustain like synthetic ingredients are actually coming up as, you know, less or more sustainable when we look at an index like that. But I just, I love when we have like a, a, a resource or um, some, something to like check ourselves against. And I would say that 
in um, the natural industry working at Sage, like we don't necessarily have those sort of tools at our disposal yet. So a lot of that work has to be done individually by organizations. And then we have to also do the job of then communicating it to the public. But I think those sort of tools really help consumers um, they, they start to like understand across different companies who's doing what and um, how they're performing. So when we think about the, the benchmarks that you've mentioned in the fashion industry, um, how, how would the consumer actually be exposed to those benchmarks? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think, um, I think where that comes more into play with consumers is around seals and um, certification. So when we think um, about um, organizations like the B Corp certification, which is something that I got an opportunity to work at while I was working for a plant-based protein company called Vega, you know, where it's, you know, the, the consumer may only see a seal, like a non-GMO seal or an organic seal. And, um, but on the back end, there is a lot of very specific targets and metrics that the brand has to meet. But I think um, for consumers, that's how they're encountering, for the most part, right? There's always consumers who are a little bit more data hungry, like, like myself. And I think as people become um, more conscious of their own personal impacts, um, people are doing more research too, you know? And, and I think that's um, something that's really exciting, but it's an ever-evolving thing in all industries is that consumers are becoming more aware and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the research themselves. When it comes to all these certifications and seals, um, we see again some of our clients that are that like to test, you know, what type of certifications to put on their different packaging uh, to understand, you know, which ones consumers actually uh, believe in um, mm -hmm. and which ones mean something. Do you have any, I guess, thoughts or recommendations around what companies should be thinking of when it comes to ensuring that whatever certifications they put? are in fact credible. Mm. Oh my gosh. I, I'm like sitting here being like, I would love to see that work um, as a marketer because that's a great question. Um, and I think there's an interesting thing about consumer behavior, right? Like sometimes we may think something that then our behavior doesn't necessarily match what we think and believe. So you know, as a brand um, with Vega and uh, with Sage as well, something we get asked a lot about is like organics. Um, but, you know, I've worked on projects in the past, not at this company, but where we've actually switched products to organic and that then saw sales actually decrease because of it. So I think that's, that's a difficult question to begin with, but I think that um, you have to do your due diligence as a brand. I know, um, that um, like, yeah, like doing the research, looking into the certifications, visiting the facilities that they run. I know with the non-GMO certification that we got at Vega, I believe there was actual like plant visits by their team. And there was, you know, some sort of oversight that um, we believed in in a company. Another um, certification that I was lucky enough to work, work on was called regenerative agriculture certification. And that um, certification, I don't know if it's an official certification yet, but it was something that we worked on with leading brands um, such as Dr. Bronner's and Patagonia. Um, but we were really interesting, interested as a group and a coalition of like-minded brands in championing a certification that actually went above and beyond the current certifications that were offered. So when you look at an organic, a certified organic 
seal, um, you can guarantee that you're getting an organic product, but you'd have no idea how that product was actually, you know, grown or um, how that product actually came to the shelf. So, you know, an organic product could be grown hydroponically, or it could be grown in a forest that was clear cut and then, um, you know, clear cut grown organically for a couple of years and then left fallow and, you know, it leads to environmental and bio, bio, biological issues. Um, but this regenerative organic our regenerative agriculture certification was like, you, okay, so you have to be organic first and foremost, but how are you actually giving back to the land? How are you actually making the soil and making the biodiversity better in that area? And then it go, went into, you know, workers' rights and animal rights in it. So I think, I think there's a lot of potential as well for brands to create their own seals. And there's always that danger of, walking the fine line between what's marketing and what's actually reliable. But so much of this conversation comes back to transparency. Like what, what are you sharing with your consumers and what are you willing to really put out there in the world in terms of like reports and um, research that you're doing on your end as well? That leads me to uh, the next question I have, which is actually, who do you think has the greatest responsibility when it comes to sustainability? Is it the government? Is it industry? Um, is it individuals? Yeah, I would, I mean, this might sound cliche to say it, but I, I think responsibility has to come at all levels of our society and that culturally we have a responsibility as well to change the ways in which we are living and our attitudes towards the natural world. Um, but what I can say is that governments and industry obviously have the biggest impact because of their scale and their influence in our society. But um, for those reasons, and because their impact is just so much more inherently large, I suppose the greatest responsibility would lie on their shoulders. But it's not to negate the responsibility that we all share as individuals as well. Um, I mean, it's not just in our direct actions around like how we throw, how we dispose of things or what we're doing to conserve, but it's also in the things that we share together as common people and how information is exchanged between people, the brands and the policies that we stand behind and our willingness, I guess, to stand up and take action and actually demand change from our governing um, bodies. But I, I would say that brands are especially keen. I know we are at Sage. I know every company I've ever worked for, we're always super keen to listen to the communities of people that we serve. So I think sometimes people underestimate the power of like writing an email and urging, you know, your favorite business to make a change. It, it really does impact things. And um, I mean, most of my career has been spent looking at not only what consumers are actually doing, working with, um, with companies like your own, looking at behavior, but actually you know, asking them what they want and like looking at something like what emails are we receiving? What social media messages are we receiving? Um, and taking all of that information um, to make positive changes to the businesses that we operate. From a business perspective, then, do you have any advice that you would give to companies who are just starting to embark on sustainability efforts or maybe companies who have already started, but they're, they're facing challenges because it sounds like based on what you're describing, that certainly you have to have the processes and the mechanisms in place in order to even get that feedback and to do something about it. Yeah, and especially, I mean, you know, when you're looking at businesses that are owned and operated by a handful of people, yes, of course, like some of this, um, you know, it's definitely some, you know, listening and being able to really take data and analyze it as something that, you know, comes with scale. But um, I think some of the most incredible businesses 
were founded on the principles of sustainability and they began with purpose and they had very clear um, a very clear direction right from the get-go you know you look at brands like toms and warby parker and like um like specifically toms right like their whole thing about like buy one give one like that was built into the brand from the beginning so you know it doesn't just have to be the big companies that are sustainable but when you want to make actual change to your organization um that might be a bit trickier for small businesses who want to respond to their um, consumers uh, what i would say is as a, as a piece of advice if if you know if, if you want to evolve the organization to become more sustainable over over a given period of time um i know from personal experience that trying to make big changes really quick can be can be very staggering it can be very hard so i really like to encourage people to work on company alignment first so developing a sustainable mindset as a company is a very important first step for companies to take and it's not saying to just get stuck in this like whirlpool of like non-action for years where it's just like oh god we want to become more sustainable but we're not doing anything but given how difficult it could be for companies to implement significant change um i would begin by putting effort into trying to create this cultural change and that might look like a set of short-term goals of just starting conversations internally around sustainability um, not just in one meeting it's um it's more about creating a culture where sustainability is a point of conversation around everything that you are doing and i think um diversity and inclusion is such a great example of how you know this year has been so so impactful to so many so many groups of people but especially um for more marginalized groups of people and i think organizations given like that the thermometer just like you know hit that boiling part point this year organizations made incredible changes around diversity and inclusion um and are are growing every day but they they made it happen and i know for us at sage like diversity and inclusion has always been you know one of our core tenants but it wasn't interwoven into everything that we were doing in a way that it is now. It is a conversation in absolutely every meeting. And um, we're ensuring that there is like, a re you know, representatives from every walk of life in every room whenever possible. Yeah, so I think that like for sustainability as well, it's, it's like you can get really stalled on not doing anything, but a great first step is to just make it become a priority because you're never going to get a budget approved for like a, a company-wide recycling program or something if if people within the company aren't already having those conversations as a team it's just like one outspoken person in the corner like me waving a flag so what i'm hearing you say is that you know if a company were to start their journey towards sustainability, the most important thing that they can do first is just to make sure that everyone is aligned um, internally from a culture perspective. Is that fair yeah, to that's, say? That's a much more <laughs> succinct way of saying it and better way of saying it. But yes, um, um, I think I think it's all around alignment. And I have, you know, I have worked for a lot of organizations where um, it's it's something that people they think they want to do, but it, it's it's sort of just bubbling under the surface. So um, yes, alignment across across the board, and and you know whether that means like baking that into your purpose as a brand or reimagining your vision as a company, um, it has to start at the very foundation of the business. So whether you're starting a business based on very sustainable ethics or you're building it in later, um, yeah, it has to start at that core purpose place. 
So when we think about that core purpose place then within an organization, so let's say it's a larger organization, you know, there's obviously like the top-down type of approach, right? If the um, leaders of the organization believe in it, then they can certainly push their the mission or the purpose across the broader organization. What if the current leadership is not so much aligned or thinking about sustainability, but there are individuals or departments within the organization that want to push for it? Do you have any advice for the the people in those situations? Like how they can get their message across? Well, I think I think like a lot of projects, you know, you do need to have some sort of executive sponsorship. And I think I would I would question because I know I've been that person in that position where, you know, it feels like at the bottom of of you know the chain of leadership, there's, you know, there's this passionate group of people who are talking about something really important, but you're never getting movement. And I know how frustrating that can be as um as an employee, but I, I would say that if you if you can, like getting an executive sponsor to support your movement through the process and getting um, you know getting your pitch or your presentation in front of the right people, that's going to be really critical to getting the success at the end of it. I would I would actually say though, if if you feel um, if you're feeling that frustration um, and you can't even get you know one executive sponsor or a leadership to sponsor you and support you through the process and I would really start to ask myself like is this is this the right you know organization for me to be you know to be giving of myself to because I think you know like they say with consumer dollars like you vote with your dollar you put your dollar in uh, by purchasing with an organization you are you're showing support for what they're doing um I think at some some companies, like it, it is it is too ingrained to change things, but um, human resources are capital for them too. So, companies that see massive shifts in their employment to newer companies that are you know built around purpose. And I know you know there's this you know these cliche stats around like how millennials are driven by all purpose driven companies, and and there's a lot of truth to that. But um, millennials or not, um, I could not work for a company that didn't, you know, fulfill my soul, that didn't make me feel better as a human being. So um, I think, yeah, willingness to change companies too, if it's just not working because, um, but, but honestly, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not the expert in getting projects approved, but I know that I have been able to make organization, organizational change. Um, and that's also like, because I, I don't give up on what I believe in and I'm not the only one, right? People, people have strong beliefs and you should never feel that those beliefs should be silenced. Your ideas are, are going to be received in one way or another. And um, sometimes you just have to repeat them 23 times before they actually get heard. Thank you for that. That's good advice. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions specific to Sage? Of course. Okay. So can you talk to us a little bit about Sage's decision to use um an RPET program to use repurpose water bottle plastics in its products. Um, what inspired this decision and why is it important to SAGE? Yeah, absolutely. So RPET um, stands for a word I'm gonna try and pronounce. I believe it's um, polyethylene terephthalate, um, but, um, or PET. So PET is, um, it's used to make water bottles, 
like the disposable water bottles you buy at like a 7-Eleven. And um, these bottles can then be recycled very easily to make other materials. So um, this inc also includes the fabric to which you alluded to. So at Sage, um, we have a program called the I Used to Be a Water Bottle Program. Um, and you'll find that almost any of our like zip up containers or pouches, we do a lot of different packaging um, that's fabric based. And um, you'll find that the predominant, predominantly this is um, our PET fabric. So um, it can be customized and designed in many ways and allows us a lot of flexibility as a very design forward company, but um, our impact as well. So um, if anyone is familiar with our pocket pharmacy, like we have the physical edition, which has the the first and most popular remedies at Sage, um, as well as our brand new Pocket Pharmacy Mindful Edition, which is more for emotional wellness. Both of those, I would say, are the, probably the most popular um, items from this sort of I used to be a water bottle program. But each of these pocket pharmacies are housed in a pouch that was created um, from slightly more than two water bottles. And because of this, we've been able to divert hundreds of thousands of water bottles out of landfills. And this program actually started long before I came to Sage at 2018. But what I can say about it is that it was really inspired by something that's really important to our culture, which is around curiosity and innovation around the materials that we use. So as a as an 100% natural company, we use a number of really delicate plant-based ingredients. We're also restricted in the type of preservatives that we can use. And um, because many of them are so delicate um, and a lot of these preservatives don't meet our natural standard and we need to use natural preservatives, we do have to use plastic for some of our ingredients to maintain the quality of um, a product over time. But we have grown to be very committed to using recycled materials wherever possible. And RPT is just provided us so many different ways of working with it. Um, but above and beyond that, you know, we, it really comes up in so many other ways that maybe aren't so obvious to the consumer, but a lot of our products are actually fully compostable. Um, or we, we look at like innovative plant-based ingredients, starting at plants, um, and how can we use those plants to create other materials? So jute is a, a, a product that we use quite, quite regularly. And I believe it's produced from a, a plant in the marshmallow family. Um, but jute is something that you, you'd see if you think of like burlap. So we have um, burlap shopping bags um, and also have these famous, I'll call them like world famous because they're, they're such a fan favorite, but they're called jute and joys. They're a little pouch with soap bars inside of them, um, but they're fully compost compostable. And then uh, one thing that really excites me is we started moving into fabrics using um, pineapple fiber. So waste products from the growing of pineapples products, like in, things that would otherwise get thrown out or composted. Um, pineapple fabric has actually been sort of an innovative, cool, newer, newer fabric we're using, but also bamboo and some of those other, um, other ingredients that you hear about when you talk about plant-based fabrics, but yeah, our PT though, like I think it's not going anywhere for sure at Sage. It's it, we just seem to find more and more ways of using this fabric. How does it impact the the quality of the actual product? So if you you know if you think about the quality compared to using if you were not using let's say the repurposed water bottles, how does that impact the actual quality? Hmm. I actually think, I mean, given for what we're making, what we're using it for, we're using it for creating some somewhat rigid packaging. So. I, I mean, I don't know of any examples. I'm sure it's been used before in the fashion industry, but it's actually, you know, it tends to be quite sturdy and durable. Um, it's very washable. I would actually say that it would be better 
like a better ingredient in terms of fabrics than say using a cotton or something which would be um, much more delicate it's uh, you know we get um it can vary in thickness of it but um it can almost be like a denim sort of thickness and i guess that's coming from the plastics itself but um yeah they just they recycle the plastic bottles into these long reams of fabric so you can use it in exactly the same way that you would use a cotton or a bamboo or something but um I mean, it's fabulously durable. Yeah, I can't speak highly enough about it. I honestly think it's actually an improvement over most of the materials out there. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned pineapple fibers. That's something I'd never heard of before. Can you tell me a little bit more about you know what part of it, the unusables from the harvesting of pineapples that is that makes the for the fiber? Is it part of the the actual tree? Is it or is it part of the pineapple? Yeah, it's, and I'm gonna, and hopefully you don't get any angry emails because I've screwed this up. I'll tell you what I think I know about it. Um, but I believe it is from the green tops of the pineapple. So if you've ever like taken a, a leaf of a pineapple apart or just torn it, it's kind of, it's got this like almost like fibrous quality to it that you'll find in like hemp and other um, sort of monocot plants and grasses. They've got these like very strong structures. So I believe it's from that part of the pineapple. I don't know a ton more about how they process it into fabrics, but I had never heard of it either. And we first started using it at holiday a couple of years ago and we, and it, it, it everything I've seen on our end, it comes through as sort of like a, a thinner um, cotton. And it does have um, almost a, a, a little bit of a um, synthetic feel to it because it is a bit rougher, but we've been able to create some beautiful bags. And then I went and um, just typed in pineapple fabric into Google and I found out that it's actually not, um, it's actually not that niche. It's actually something that's used quite um, extensively. I would imagine much more through like Polynesia and Asia, probably Hawaii for um, all the pineapples they grow over there, but um, it's actually quite um, becoming quite a popular fabric. So um, I know that a lot of people have heard of, um, you know, the bamboo fabrics and um, the other ones, but um, this is definitely something I, I'm very interested in. I'm also very fascinated and we haven't done anything with it yet, but I'm really interested in, in some of the fabrics that are being developed from mycorrhizae mushroom filaments and like the fungal filaments um, in the earth. I don't fully understand it, but there, um, I believe there was a fashion brand that created almost like a leather, like um, a vegan leather from mushroom and fungal microfibers. I don't know. It's so beyond my pay grade to understand that, but <laughs> it looks great. It's, it's incredible how we can pull fibers or extract them from these things. Like you said, the mushrooms and the fungus that you would never even fathom what's possible. So fascinating. And I guess the question always is, is like what, you know, it's great that we can have these innovative materials, but then are they actually making a difference um, for water production and for some of those other metrics? But when I looked look at something like pineapple fabrics, I, those are the kind of innovations I love. It's um, waste from something that's already being produced um, and otherwise would just be you know, not used. I know something we did at Vega what, for a while, we were, um, you know, all owned by this, by Danone, the same kind of parent company, but we, um, Earthbound Farms who create salads, had some, you know, waste from their salads that then we were able to use. Like it was like the, the not perfect looking greens, like the ones that might have a little speck on them or something. And those greens, then we were able to convert into part of our greens powder and the actual protein powder. So I, I, I love when you see that sort of like working together to keep 
products out of the landfill. So something like that RPG that we were talking about is a really good example as well. But I would say before you know, before you go and look for something brand new, like where are those operational efficiencies that you've been stumped around um, that you can then leverage to actually create sustainable change in your organization? And I think as a marketer too, um, there's a lot of marketers out there who probably have like sustainability or diversity as a side of desk job for themselves. But, um, you know, you, you have to look outside of your, your group, like because operations in a business can oftentimes make the biggest impact because they're most in touch with like the supply chain and also, you know, what product is like maybe their waste product and the factories and the manufacturing side of the business. So um, for anyone interested in sustainability, it's definitely, um, there's a lot of parts of it that will probably seem foreign to you when you get into it. Um, there's a lot of looking at numbers. There's a lot of looking at parts of the business that you may not have otherwise looked at. And um, I think that's very exciting though. It's, it's, it's such a cross-functional sort of um, position to be in. You know, with the pineapple example, it's the water, everything in terms of the resources going into the production of the pineapples has already taken place, right? So when you're extracting the fibers from the leaves, it's not like you're incurring more resources and using more water in order to do that. Because that's where I find now with some of the um, other industries, including food, where for example, if you think about all the different milks that are available now, it seems like you can extract milk out of everything. Um, I'm thinking about oat milk. Um, I mean, soy milk has been around for a long time, but oat milk, rice, almond, you got milk, almond yeah. yes. <laughs> macadamia. Yes, macadamia, like who would have thought, but it's, now I think the more savvy consumers are like, well, wait a second, the amount of water it takes to produce, let's say, um, soy milk or almond milk is actually not so good for the environment. So there, there are more questions that are now coming up where, like as a consumer, you might think you're doing good, but it takes that extra level of digging, I think, to really understand what's going on. And I feel like it's companies' res responsibilities if they're going to embark on sustainability to have done their due diligence in really understanding the full, like, I, I guess, like supply chain in terms of how all of these different ingredients and the harvesting of the materials is, is really impacting the environment. Oh, totally. It's so funny that you brought, bring up the milk thing because I was three days ago in a Costco with my husband and I think he said to me, he was like, he's like, oh, but do you actually like the oat milk better than the almond milk? And I, and I actually had this conversation where I was like, well, I, I actually do like oat milk better than almond milk. Um, but I'm the type of consumer that's like, no, but I like it better because it's grown mostly in Canada. It's, you know, I know that oat production is much more efficient and sustainable than almond milk. And I, I, you know, I understand that most consumers probably aren't at that point where they're thinking about those things, but I actually, I shouldn't say that because it's, you know, consumers are incredibly passionate, um, but it is, it's the company's responsibility because it's, it's, it's not enough anymore to just say something is like, you know, um, healthy and made from plants and and that's why it's better it's you know because that's it's you know you made a great point that's not necessarily always true to wrap up then is there any other big message you'd like our listeners to take away about what they can do to support a sustainable future oh such a big great question um but i think going back to just you know my purpose around um working with you know people first um I really do believe that 
we, we you know we have we have some big work to do with um, indigenous people, people of color, and marginalized groups. And you know I, I don't know when this is going to air, but it's you know it's June of 2021, and we're making really devastating discoveries around residential schools here in Canada. Um, but I do believe that we need to start with acknowledging the past, letting go of some of these societal issues like racism and negative perceptions and stereotypes, but also respecting people's challenges and goals, their beliefs, cultures, traditions, and worldviews. Um, I mean, I think specifically around Indigenous peoples, it, it, it means recognizing their connection to the land, honoring treaties, learning from them and their traditions, respecting their rights um, and title, and supporting reclamation of an identity, language, culture, nationhood, everything. Um, but I think if we can't see eye to eye on some of the most pressing issues of our own personal identities, and we're still dealing with this enormous human cruelty and pain, then we're never going to really be able to embrace more sustainable worldviews. I think, you know, when you think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's, um, you know, your own needs for like food and water and survival are so, are so much more important that, you know, then getting to this point where we can actually think really globally. And so, I mean, I think that might sound like a strange answer when we're talking about, you know, sustainability, but I think we need to see a shift away from the ideals of our world that keep us separated and come to a better understanding about how to serve each other and how doing things to benefit others is not an attack on independence, but rather a way of giving us freedom and giving us the opportunity to think and take action on some of these some of these issues that may, you know, they may not impact you in, in our lifetime. I mean, a lot of them are really speeding up and really getting really scary, um, but they are going to impact future generations even more. And, um, you know, going back to this idea of the impact passing across generational time, I do believe we can't just think about the freedoms that we have today and the lives we live today, but we have to think about the rights and the future that's ahead of us. And, you know, I don't have kids, but I can still, I still think through the mindset of um, other people that have yet to be born in this world. So I think, you know, these are messages that have been repeated to us over and over again, but we just don't seem to be getting any closer together as people right now. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's a tricky time that we're living in. But I think that for the first time, we're looking at some of the things that we've done in our past, and that includes some of the environmental damage that we've done. And until we do that, I don't think we can move beyond. So um, I hope that's, that's inspiring or helpful to your listeners. But um, yeah, I really want to leave it at that, I guess. Yeah, th thank you. That's definitely inspiring. And I think um, what I really appreciate about your answer is that it's grounded in terms of the what's core and important to humanity overall, right? It's not just about uh, sustainability as a, as a topic on its own. Um, everything that we do live and breathe, it's, it's not in a vacuum, right? So if we go back to what's really foundational and make sure that we, we do have that tolerance and understanding of everyone and we can align, that's, I think it has to start from there. So thank you so much for, for that response and for our conversation today. Really appreciate your input. You're so welcome. Thank you. In summary, I see three key themes from the discussion with Trevor. Number one, before we can even truly think globally on issues such as sustainability, we need to address the fundamental ne human needs, which include issues of our personal identities, culture, and nations. I think he said it very well with his statement. 
We need to shift from the ideals of this world that keep us separated and come to a better understanding of how to serve each other. Number two, when it comes to sustainability, it's important for consumers to understand that just because something is plant-based or healthy doesn't mean that it's more sustainable than traditional alternatives. So as consumers, if we're serious about supporting sustainability, we need to dig a little deeper and become more informed. This also means that businesses have an important role to play in ensuring that the innovative materials they are considering are actually making a difference in water production, for example. Trevor's advice is for companies to review efficiencies in current productions to see what can be leveraged, and ideally to reuse waste from something that is already produced. And he gave the ex excellent examples of the pineapple fabric and the imperfect salad greens being converted to protein powder. And number three, there's an important role of data and metrics to play in sustainability, both for consumers and companies. These can be in the form of sustainability indices, seals, and certifications. The index is a great concept because it provides a metric for companies to check themselves against. And companies which share their benchmarks and how they plan to meet their goals with consumers are also more likely to be seen as more transparent, which is critical to building trust. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts for more episodes of Bright Lights, Consumer Trends in Conversation with Element 54.